Well, I trust that you've had a good week. It's been nice to see a little bit of the warmer weather. Uh, I feel like I can finally come out of hibernation mode and uh, start exercising and riding bikes and jogging. And um, I just hope I can stand up for the whole service now. I'm sore. Uh, It's been a while since I've used those muscles. But it's great to have some warmer weather. And it's great to be able to gather together to hear from God's Word. For the last several weeks now, we have been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, looking at the theme of the king and his kingdom. The thing that is interesting is that to this point, we really haven't seen the king. He hasn't been in the limelight. Till now, uh, Jesus has been present But he hasn't necessarily been the specific focus of any of these scriptures leading up to our passage today. Mary has been in the limelight. Joseph has been in the limelight. We've seen magi traveling great distances. Herod in his madness. Even last week, John the Baptist. And the focus on all of these people has been greater, in one sense, than the focus upon Jesus. So finally, today... For the first time, Jesus intentionally walks onto the page of Scripture, onto the stage of history. He's here. This is where it starts. This is where His ministry all begins, and everything up to this point has been preparatory. Are you ready to see Him? This one that's been long prophesied about. This one who the hinge of history revolves around. I love the way John MacArthur speaks of this. He says, After an eternity of glory and 30 years of obscurity, the king is now manifested publicly for the world to see. That's a great way to say that. And so we come this morning to our first story of the adult Jesus. And we come to a story that is um, in no small way a little perplexing because it's the story of Jesus' baptism. Now, this is a story that is well-beloved. It is actually one of very few stories found in all four Gospels, though Matthew adds a little extra in verses 14 and 15 that the other Gospel writers don't include. So this morning, I'd like for us to read our passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, just four short verses. And then I'd like for us to pray that God will make us appreciate in a new way, what He's done for us in Christ. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill All righteousness. And then John permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Pray with me, please. God, we come this morning to be students of your word. And Lord, not just students who grow smarter in their biblical knowledge, but that we might grow um, more intentional in how we apply your word to our life. So God, we thank you right now for our Bible, 
Your Word. A light shining, a pathway for us to follow. We pray this morning that you'll give us the boldness to follow you fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when we come to this story, we know a little bit about John the Baptist and we know a little bit about Jesus. We've heard of both of these characters. Now, we have no idea how well they actually knew each other. They were related to each other. They were cousins. But we don't know how much they actually interacted. We know that when Mary was uh, told by the angel that she was pregnant, she was encouraged uh, in the uh, fact that Elizabeth, her uh, older relative, was also pregnant in a miraculous fashion with John the Baptist. And you'll remember the story that when John the Baptist in the womb was in the presence of his Lord, his cousin, it says that John the Baptist leapt in the womb. He was filled uh, in utero with the Holy Spirit and he recognized the presence of the Lord. Now we don't know, did they go to summer camp together? Did he ever have a sleepover with cousin Johnny? What was their What was their interaction like? We have no idea, but we do know this. That according to this passage, when Jesus walked up, John the Baptist recognized him immediately. He knew who he was. And so, perhaps for the first time in their adult life, you have John the Baptist and you have Jesus, and now their paths intersect. They come to this junction This river. And last week we talked about John's preaching. He preached about repentance and the need to confess your sins and to be baptized. Well, Jesus has heard this message and he comes to John to be baptized by him. And what does John do? Well, he does what any good pastor does. He says, come on down. Let's get this taken care of. No, that's not what the scripture says. It says that John tried to prevent him. And the actual tense is in the imperfect. It means this wasn't a one-time conversation. To to better translate it, John was trying to prevent him. They had more than just an exchange of one or two sentences. This was a conversation. And John is going, "Um, Jesus, baptism demonstrates repentance. And you are the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. You don't need to get in the water. You have nothing to repent of. And you know what? John was right. How did Jesus answer him? So John, verse 14, or verse 15, you're right, but permitted at this time so that we can fulfill all righteousness. This is the opposite reaction that John the Baptist had to the Jewish religious leaders last week. They needed to repent and didn't, and he refused them baptism because of that very issue. Jesus didn't need to repent, yet consented to baptism, and John sought to prevent him as well. Now, Matthew has not, in um, any great detail, explicitly talked about Christ's sinlessness, but it was implied by his virgin birth. And it's here confirmed by John's hesitancy to baptize Jesus with a baptism that is for repentance. It's interesting, I think, to note here very early on in this conversation, what does John do when Jesus asks to be baptized? He confesses his own sin. He says, you come to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. Jesus, we've reversed the order here. Something's not right. 
And Jesus just very calmly and perhaps enigmatically says, we need to do this. So have you ever stopped to think about why in the world did Jesus need to be baptized? That's my question for you this morning. Did he not believe in himself? Did he not fully trust the Father? Did he not fully understand his mission? No, he was God. But I think there are things that we can learn here today that are imminently practical, that will do our heart good to hear and affirm as we look at this story of Jesus' baptism. And the very first thing I'd ask you to notice is that all three persons of the Trinity are especially present in baptism. All three persons of the Trinity are especially present in baptism. We just read the passage. The Son is baptized. The Spirit descends. The Father speaks. We'll talk about those three things here more later. But let me encourage you to do this. To prove this point. At Jesus' baptism, at the very beginning of His ministry, we see Father, Son, and Spirit present at baptism. When you go to the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 28, listen to verses 16 through 20 that conclude Matthew's telling of the gospel. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus himself had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Did you notice something kind of interesting there? It's bad grammar. They're supposed to be baptized into the name of the... Help me now. Father, Son... Holy Spirit, how many people? Three persons. But they're to be baptized into the name, singular. Not names. Be baptized into the names. No, the name. Because God is one being, but three people. Now that's deep. If you've got uh, extra questions about that, uh, Pastor Larry will be glad to talk with you after the service today. And completely erase any questions that you have about how God can be three in one. We, we don't want to discourage questions. But we also have to understand when we're dealing with something that is perhaps a little bit larger for our minds to really conceive of. And so we affirm fully that God is one being but three people. And there's really not a good analogy for us to continue with that. But the point here this morning is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the very end when he makes this declaration, the Trinity itself is especially present. There is something about baptism that calls all of the Trinity out to be a part of it. That's awesome. And so it's clear that in some kind of special way, baptism is important to the Trinity. Well, why? Why? There are many truths, but let's just limit ourselves to our four verses here in Matthew chapter 3. And I think there are some things that we will learn. Uh, To begin with, in baptism, the Son obeys. 
And he obeys specifically by identifying with sinners. Jesus obeys by being baptized and identifying with sinners. Now, does anybody remember the sermon that John the Baptist preached last week? I baptize with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. So this is a little bit of a curveball when we read the next story. Because we expect Jesus to come as a baptizer, not a baptize-e, if that's a word. We kind of expect a role reversal, and here he's coming to be baptized for this strange phrase to fulfill all righteousness. You see, for Jesus, his baptism was a baptism of obedience, not a baptism of repentance. I think even the man on the street is very well aware that Jesus' career ended on a cross between two thieves. But is it equally well known that Jesus' career began in a river with a bunch of sinners? Because this episode in Matthew chapter 3 helps us identify what his mission was when he hung on that tree. He came to identify, to say, I'm, I'm one of you. And to be able to bear our sins. His baptism is a way of completely and totally identifying with a sinful humanity, though sinless himself, by submitting to an act that was required of sinners. Isn't it beautiful to see the humility that Jesus demonstrated? He's not a CEO that's afraid to clean bathrooms. He's not the God of the universe that's going to make everyone grovel at his feet. He's humble enough to be misunderstood and to be numbered among sinners because he is humble of spirit. Isaiah 53, 12 says this, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. In our baptism, we likewise identify with him. We say we are no longer of the world. We are of Christ. And we do that by going through the waters of baptism. Our identification with him, however, is only possible because of his identification with us. He makes our salvation possible. I love the way that C.S. Lewis said this. He said this, The Son of God became a Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. Did you get that? The Son of God became a Son of Man that sons of men might become sons of God. Now, we're adopted into the family. Jesus was never created. We're not Jesus, but Jesus became a man so that men, sinners like us, might be adopted into God's family by reconciliation and redemption. It's a beautiful thing. So Jesus obeys in baptism by identifying with sinners. But he also obeys by setting an example. He obeys by setting an example. Here's what's great. Jesus begins his ministry by showing 
what will be central in ours. Jesus begins his ministry by showing what will be central in ours. Fast forward again to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, I say to you, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, we can go all over the place and we can share the name of Christ. But if we do not make disciples in baptized, we're falling short of the Great Commission. Jesus sets an example. He makes of first priority to do something that he's asking us to make central in ours. Baptism is an important issue. Jesus' leader doesn't ask us to do anything that he didn't do. He didn't need to be baptized. We do. We need to confess our sins. We need to identify with him. Friends, for those of you that are hesitant about baptism, consider this for a second. Jesus doesn't ask you to bear your sins publicly, naked, on a cross, open to the derision and mockery of those who hate God. He has already done that for you. He asks you to confess him, to openly identify with him, because his identification with us led him to a cross. Your identification with him will lead you to a baptistry. Can you identify publicly with a Lord who publicly identified with you to bear your sins, to make salvation possible for you? He sets the example. But he also, he also obeys by picturing salvation. There is no doubt that there is a lot of imagery in the process of baptism. There's the idea of purification. There's certainly the idea of death if you're held under the water too long. And in his baptism, he is showing that he would bring about salvation through his death and resurrection. Jesus himself would be buried and would be raised. And through that act, salvation would be possible. Sins would be atoned for and souls could be saved. And at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, by submitting to the act of the baptismal rite, he is foreshadowing the climax of his ministry. That while he is buried and raised symbolically in water, there will come a day where he will be buried and raised again from death to provide new life. So we learn some things about the Son that are awesome. But we see some things about the Spirit as well that are helpful for us in our understanding. In baptism, the Spirit descends and anoints. In baptism, the Spirit descends and anoints. Now, the imagery it would not be lost on a Jew. When, when Jesus came up from the water, it says that the heavens were opened and that the Spirit of God came down and looked like a dove. Now, what's the first image that comes into your mind when you think of a dove? Probably peace. That's not the first thing that would have popped into a Jewish person's mind because a dove was an animal used for slaughter. It was a sacrifice. And it's not by mistake that a dove, a pigeon, the very thing that uh, Jesus' parents used uh, uh, at his circumcision as a gift to God is here pictured as lighting upon him. 
Now, we know that the Holy Spirit was on Jesus uh, even before he was born. So why does the Spirit come upon him now? Well, very simply for this, to anoint him as king for service and to give him additional strength for ministry. This is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 61.1, one of Jesus' very first sermons. He quoted this very passage. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. The truth is, Jesus as the God-man in His divine nature... He didn't need any strengthening. But in his human nature, he could use it. He could use the Spirit. He needed the Spirit's influence in his humanity. But lastly, we see that in baptism, not only does the Son obey by identifying with sinners, by setting an example, by picturing salvation, not only does the Spirit descend and anoint, but in baptism, the Father speaks approvingly. Now there's a lot that happens in this passage. And none of it is insignificant. To begin with, it says that the heavens are open again. As as soon as Jesus was baptized and came up immediately from the water, behold, the heavens were opened. God's alive and active again. It had been 400 silent years. And the opening of heaven was the beginning of a line of communication that pious people had thought had been lost. God opens the heavens. God sends His Spirit. Did you see how the Spirit is called? He's not called the Holy Spirit. Now we know that's who He is. In verse 16, He's called the Spirit of God. Why? to emphasize the Father's action in this passage. He's not just the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit sent by God, the Spirit of God. And then thirdly, the Father speaks. Heaven's opened, Spirit sent, Father speaks. Divine communication is resuming. And what does He say? Been a long time, guys. No. This is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. After 400 years of silence, this is what he says. He confirms that Jesus is his unique Son, and he compliments Jesus' obedience. See, when Jesus says, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness, he does it, and what's God say? Well done. I am well pleased. You have obeyed me in all things. Now, I know, as a father of two boys, my boys need to hear me say that. They need to hear that they're precious. They need to hear they're my heroes. They need to hear that I think they can change the world. Why does Jesus need to hear this? Did Jesus have daddy issues? I don't think so. 
It's not so much that Jesus needed to hear it as much as everyone else who was there did. You see, for Jesus, this was not a private event. He didn't ask, you know, John, if down by the uh, Jordan River, if he had like a little side room where he could have his little private baptismal service. Last week, we talked about how all of Jerusalem was traveling out there to hear John and to participate in his baptism. So when Jesus shows up, you can almost guarantee that there's a crowd that's there. That there are many people who are gathered around and they witness this thing that is happening. They see the heavens open. They see the dove descend. They hear the Father speak. And what is it that he says? It's this, that Jesus is the Son. He is the Son. He is not a Son. He is the one who has been promised. Psalms 2.7 says, He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. We know that Jesus is not begotten, not like we are. He is eternal. He is everlasting. But now, in Jesus' incarnation, He hears His Father's voice publicly, installing, initiating, commissioning, and crowning Him into His public ministry. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Whether anyone recognized it or not, God the Father at the outset was saying, This is my Son. This is Him. The silent and the hidden years are now over. And not only does He speak approvingly, but He provides a gift for Jesus to help Him to carry out His obedience fully by causing the Spirit to descend upon Him, to anoint Him, to equip Him for the task that He has been called to do. But I want you to notice something else about this Son. He doesn't just say, This is my Son. He finishes the sentence by saying, With whom I am well pleased. And the truth is this, though a son, Jesus is also the suffering servant. Though a son, Jesus is also the suffering servant. Psalm 42 is the beginning of what we call the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 42, verse 1 says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. By saying, by the Father saying that he is pleased. He is acknowledging this one coming out of the water who has openly identified with sinners. Who is marked in a way no one else is marked by the Holy Spirit. This one who is the unblemished and acceptable sacrifice. Man had offered countless sacrifices over thousands of years. And God had never fully been pleased with any one of them. Because the truth is, when you finish your sacrifice for the day, then you can start preparing your sacrifice for tomorrow. Because you will sin. And you will need another temporary sacrifice to sustain you. But in this one who is dearly loved but at the same time, deeply pleasing. God knows that the old things are passing away and that the true way of salvation is being proclaimed. This 
is my son in whom I am well pleased. Friends, this is where it begins. If at any point Jesus would not have done these things, our salvation would be an impossibility. But he has identified with sinners that sinners might identify with him. He has set us an example. He has pictured his salvation, this understanding of moving from death to life. We've seen the Spirit descend. We've seen the Father speak. All of this, every point, is done for us and for our salvation. God the Father doesn't sit back and wonder how this is all going to turn out. He's actively involved. The Spirit doesn't flit from here to there, hoping everything works out. He's involved. And Here's what's really, I think, just, I don't have another word, just cool. All of these things can be immensely important for us today. Look at your outline. Consider these facts. That today, while there are other kinds of public professions of faith that have become common, raising your hand, walking an aisle, filling out a card, standing up, we have to recognize that when we follow the Lord in baptism, that that is the biblical, visible, public way that we identify with Christ. Friends, it is not enough for Jesus to identify with you and you say, I'm good. You have to find a way to identify with Christ and express your faith in Him. And the Bible calls this baptism. Your public confession of faith is not shaking my hand and praying with me at the end of the service. Your public confession of faith is passing through the waters of baptism and saying publicly, I am identifying with Christ and I am on the team. Get me a jersey. I am passing from death into life. I don't want this to be a secret. I'm obeying Jesus' example and I, in my own life, am picturing His sacrifice that made new life for me possible. The story about Jesus' baptism is not just a story about Him. It's a story about you. History knows that Jesus has identified with sinners. History does not know yet what sinners will identify with him. And so today, if identifying with Jesus is important, we'll get the Baptist refilled. We'll make it possible for you to obey and for you to say publicly, I'm identifying with the Lord who identified shamefully publicly for me. Think about this. We believe that every believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus received strengthening, anointing, and ordaining for ministry, once we identify with Christ, guess what? When you get in His family, when He adopts you, when you identify and say, I'm on the team, you get a job too. You get strengthened. You get, you get anointed. You get commissioned for doing something for God that was not possible for you before. And so you may be one of those people that's here, and you're baptized. You know you've identified. You're on the team. You know you got the class ring. I mean, you've got it all. You're ready to go. But maybe you're not. Maybe you're not working for God the way that you should. 
The challenge is just to wonder what would happen in our church if everybody served God as they ought. I'll give you a clue. Some of you would be standing next week. Some of you wouldn't have a place to sit. Because if God's church truly got unleashed and took their baptism seriously enough to say, I'm on the team, what's my job? Good golly, that'd be a church to be hard to stop, wouldn't it? It's amazing. Just this morning, we go through garbage bags very quickly in our household. I, I don't know if you can buy stock in kitchen trash can bags, but if we could, we would have a very effective college savings plan. Because I put one in last night, and it was full after breakfast this morning. And I'm not talking a little guy. I'm not talking, you know, good size. And so, you know, we, we were pulling out, putting a new one in. And one of my unnamed children, I asked to take it out back. Well, that's someone else's job. You're in this family too, right? You take it out. When you're in the family, there's just stuff that you got to do. We need to remember that. Perhaps for some of you, uh, listen, understanding our context, there are many of you that have served the Lord for a long time with a happy heart. God bless you. Perhaps your new role at this church is to be the chief encourager of the people that are replacing you. Do you know what? That's a job, and it needs to happen. It needs to happen. Maybe, maybe you go, I've, don't use the phrase, I've done my time, because then that sounds like a prison term. I just don't like that. I've done my time. I did 17 years hard time in the nursery. Please. Perhaps you have graduated. And uh, because of life's circumstances and uh, uh, maybe decreasing flexibility, uh, your area of service is not the best place for you to serve. You know what? It doesn't cost much to be an encourager of those who are doing it now. And so remember, when the Spirit comes, He anoints, but He also calls you to service. And lastly, this, and it's a precious truth. By believing in His Son, we can hear the Father speak approvingly to us as well. We can hear the Father say to us, He is well pleased with us. Because what does God desire? For all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We too can hear the Father's words of approval. We too can be a delight to Him. Not because of anything in us. Not at all. But because we, by faith, are found in His Son. United to Him in baptism. Anointed with His Spirit. Just as the Father can look at Him and see no imperfection in His Son, and be well pleased with Him. By grace, He now finds no imperfection in those who trust and identify with His Son. And so friends, if God seems like a foreign entity to you, it need not be that way. He calls, He equips, He commissions. Our job, like Jesus, 
is to obey and to delight in that obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that in our hearts you will make us grateful for what God has done for us. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and made us members of his kingdom of light. You've forgiven our sins. You've not counted our trespasses against us. You've given us the opportunity to identify with you, to be called, equipped, to serve. What tremendous privileges. God, as we have the opportunity to respond right now, we pray that your spirit will descend upon this congregation and that he will do his convicting work on our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.